We're turning now in the scriptures to 1 Samuel chapter 9. We started back in the fall a sermon series through 1 and 2 Samuel, and that's what we are continuing today. If you don't have a Bible with you, please use the one in the pew rack, and that's page 231. First Samuel chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacorath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. And there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any one of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you, and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came, came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there's no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? They answered, he is. Behold, he's just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that's on your mind. As for your donkeys, 
that were lost three days ago. Do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day, and when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he laid down to sleep. And at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he's passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. If you look back at verse 1, you see that we're entering a new section of the book of Samuel. Uh, and in the history of Israel, that's because uh, of the opening line, there was a man. That's actually, if you go back to chapter 1, how the book begins, there was a man. And so we see that the first eight chapters are actually about the rise of Samuel. Now we come to chapter 9, and we're reading of the rise of Saul. We're turning the page from a theocracy where God alone, through his um, uh, priests and prophets, ruled the nation. We're moving from a theocracy to a, mo a monarchy. Uh, the kingdom is now to be established. And with our fascination um, as Americans with royalty... This should be really exciting stuff. This should grip us. We can't wait to read about uh, kings and, and all of their um, adventures. So this should be a, a riveting page-turner, and instead we get donkeys. What is going on in this chapter? If you didn't think that at least one time while I was reading it, I don't believe you. What in the world is, is taking place here? How is this the start of a kingdom? How is this God intervening in the world, orchestrating all things for the good of his people? Uh, that isn't, this is not the first time when you're reading the Bible. It's not the first time. It's not going to be the last time you ask that kind of question. If you read the Bible carefully, there are a lot of times where you, you stop and you're, you're puzzled and you wonder, what is happening here? What am I supposed to be learning? What is God supposed to be doing? It happens quite a lot, actually, because God loves to subvert our expectations. He loves to do his work in the shadows in ways that we would not uh, expect. And so, this seemingly bizarre tale of missing donkeys is actually really applicable uh, for us. Some, a number of you asked this week, were we going to have a special church building kind of sermon? You're getting donkeys today. Uh, but I, I hope you'll see that it actually does have a lot to say about how God has been guiding us as a congregation. Uh, and that's not because we're special, it's just because this is how God works. Uh, we learn something of God's providence in this chapter, the providence that's still at work today for you and me, and it's teaching us something about the circumstances that God uses, the, the people that God employs, 
and the mercy that God shows. So first, the circumstances that God uses. Let's take note of the event that kicks off this chapter. It's actually one that doesn't seem to be worthy of note, that some animals had gone missing. But of course, if you are Kish and they're your animals, you would care a lot. This is like the modern-day equivalent of waking up and finding that your garage is empty, the driveway is empty. Uh, His donkeys are missing. And so he has his son, Saul, uh, go looking for them. Saul is described as handsome and young. Handsome is the Hebrew word for good. So it could be good-looking, but it also could be good-natured. It could be that he has a a nice temperament, a good uh, character. Young is a relative term. It doesn't so much mean a young teenager as as a man in the the prime of his life. Um, I I guess maybe we all have a a different idea of when that is. But uh, since... Uh, His adult son, Jonathan, is introduced in just a few chapters. He's probably in his 40s um, at this point. So, men in your 40s, you're in the prime of your life, according to the Hebrew Bible. There you go. Saul and this unnamed servant set out across the country in search of the pack of runaway donkeys. And verse 4, if you look there, describes back to back to back three failed attempts to find the animals. So, it seemed uh, like this entire... Uh, Time away from home has been a gigantic waste, and yet what what ends up happening? Uh, Saul finds God's prophet, and uh, soon, uh, we'll we'll read it officially in chapter 10, but soon uh, this will be uh, the decisive moment of establishing Israel's first king. It was a waste of time to Saul, but it's exactly what the nation needed. It was a waste of time from Saul's perspective, but from God's perspective, it was exactly what was supposed to happen. The big things in life rarely happen in the big things. I wonder if you have learned that lesson yet, that the big things in life rarely happen in the big things. It's certainly true for the big things that happen in the Bible. Isaac is just out for an evening stroll, and he bumps into Rebecca, who would be his future wife. Mordecai just happens to be sitting outside City Hall, and he overhears a conversation Uh, that gives him the information he needs to to thwart a plan that eventually uh, would save. He saves the entire nation from extinction of Israel. He saves the entire nation of Israel. Uh, Or think of Peter and Andrew. They're just out fishing. They're fishermen. This is what they do every single day, but they encounter the Messiah, and they're called into his purpose, and they're transformed so that they actually uh, go and establish the church and build the the new covenant church and, and would even go on to be martyred for the sake of Christ. And yet, to them, it was just a day like any other day. They were just fishing. Back in 1946, some teenage Bedouin shepherds uh, were out with their herd of goats um, in a region near the ancient settlement of Qumran in, in Israel. And one goat got away. Uh, looking for better pastures, and so as they moved the rest of the goats after him and, and were following after him, it, it, this goat took them to a series of caves that overlooked the Dead Sea, and they believed that the one goat went into the cave and they couldn't find it, and so the one shepherd, when he looked in, could only see pitch black, so he tossed a rock in to the cave and was surprised to hear uh, shattering, and so upon further investigation, they find that there was a bunch of jars inside this cave, He had shattered one open, and inside were ancient biblical scrolls, biblical manuscripts. This was the first of what became over 700 scrolls. They're known as the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found back in the 40s 
and 50s. So here's a mundane moment. You're just watching goats in the desert. Nothing special about it to those shepherds. It's what they had done every day of their lives and, and their, their ancestors before them. It was a mundane moment, but it became the start of something amazing, the discovery of some of the most ancient historical documents that, that verify the scriptures that silence biblical critics and fortified Christians in the faith even still today. Another example, more recently and much more locally, are the events that took place um, starting this past May. Uh, in this building, in the pastor's study, uh, just down the hallway, in his trash can, set a letter that I had uh, sent uh, to, to Grace Harbor Church, along with 50 other churches, uh, asking if they knew of any ideas of, of a, a larger space that could be used for our congregation. And uh, the pastor read the letter and put it in the trash. Just another unwanted, unsolicited uh, a piece of mail. In, in this, is, this is what Jacob says every time he gets the mail. Is this a good one or is this junk, right? This was junk. And it's in the trash. Except something moved Pastor Ferguson that day to reach back in to the trash can and to uh, give me a call. And... Here's the mundane thing, right? A piece of paper in the trash. And here's the marvelous thing as we're here today. A new home, a new place for ministry, a new place to worship. Gordon Ketty writes this, Insignificant events herald God's almighty acts. Insignificant events herald God's almighty acts. I think you know that to be true if you're willing to look back at your life. It's hardly anything we ever know in the moment, but as we survey our life, we learn that God works in the mundane to do something amazing. Think of some of those tiny, seemingly insignificant events in your life that have brought you to where you are. In um, 1867, John Rockefeller, three years before he started Standard Oil and would go on to become the richest man in the world, he missed a train um, that ended up derailing and killing almost everybody on board, but his life was spared because he missed it. Why did he miss it? He was late because he was trying to fish a pebble out of his shoe. Do you think Rockefeller thought at that moment that that pebble was significant? What has it been for you? Uh, what were those insignificant moments that God has used? Maybe the way you met your spouse or how you got your job or even how you first heard of Christ. I was thinking, I wonder how many people can trace their conversion back to a conversation that probably annoyed them at the start as they were sitting next to a Christian on a plane. Insignificant, but God uses it. If we trace our life and the events in our life, if we trace them back far enough, we see that they are... Uh, hardly remarkable were not for what they led to and for the way God used them. Saul left home for donkeys. He returns with a dynasty. And so what's the lesson? The lesson is that God is always working his purposes out, even in the mundane, even in the frustrations of life. This is a frustrating moment for Saul. He can't find the donkeys. Three times he's, he's uh, attempted and has failed. We've all been there. We've spent hours, days, uh, weeks on things that just haven't panned out and, and haven't worked right, and we think it's, it's been a failure. We feel like we've wasted time, but God uses every moment for his people. There isn't such thing as a wasted moment from God's perspective. So look for him in those mundane moments, uh, those frustrating moments tomorrow, maybe on the, the uh, commute to work or as you're getting breakfast for the kids or as you're uh, making a meal. As you go for a walk, reflect on the truth of lost donkeys 
These are the circumstances that God uses for your good and for his glory. Let's look secondly at the people that God employs in this story. They are just as unexpected as the circumstances. Uh, First, there's this unnamed servant of Saul. It would seem like he's just a B character in the story, but he's actually the one who has the insight to look after God in the matter of the runaway animals. He thinks that this is something that's worth asking God about. Isn't that interesting? Uh, By the way, boys and girls, there's never anything too small or too silly to seek God's wisdom in. There's never anything that's too silly to pray about, in other words. You can take anything to God. And and that's, that's sort of what this servant is doing, right? Saul's getting frustrated because he can't find his keys. And, and the servant says, why don't we ask God about it? Why don't we ask God about it? He's the one who has the insight here. As he and Saul are wandering through the wilderness, uh, he knows, notice that Saul doesn't. It's the servant that knows that Samuel is nearby. Uh, without the servant's prompting, God's promise to provide a king would have fallen short. So this unnamed servant is part of the plan. He is not a, a A B character. In fact, there are no B characters. There's no small parts in the Bible. There are no B characters in life either. God will use us all. And the best life lived is to recognize that we are to be used by God. And then then to seek his, his will in all things. Look now at verse 11. As they enter the city where where they believe Samuel to be, uh, we see that God also employs the women of Zeph, whom uh, Saul and the servant have just come across, who happened to be, just happened to be, uh, getting some water. Um, the people that are instrumental in establishing Israel king, Israel's kingdoms are the type of people who would never end up in history book, and yet they end up in the Bible. Isn't that fascinating? They make it into God's book. Well, then there's Saul. Now, Saul, unlike the servant or the women, He is exactly the kind of person we would expect uh, to be important in the story. He's exactly the kind of person who would take on the role of a king. What did the people of Israel want? You'll recall from the last chapter, they made their intentions very clear. Give us a king like the nations. They wanted what they saw, and so that's what God gives them. What is Saul described like? There was not a man, this is verse 2, There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. God gives them what they asked for, which is a fitting reason that Saul's name actually means asked for. This is what you wanted. Now you have it. Um, But there are some hints that even though Saul seems to look the part, he's actually not the right man for the job. Uh, He is... Uh, invited to a sacred feast in verses 22 and following. He's given a privileged place at the the head of the table. Um, And and this is indicative of his future role in the nation. But even so, there's a spiritual shallowness here uh, that we see throughout the chapter. Some think that his inability to find the donkeys, uh, this lost herd, is a uh, foreshadowing of his inability to shepherd the nation. Maybe there's that. Also consider that he walks right up to Samuel, who he did not know was in the city. Remember, the servant knew that. He had no idea. But then he walks right up to him and doesn't recognize who he is. He says, have you you heard if there's a prophet in town? And Samuel has to say, yeah, that's me. 
But we were told back in chapter 3 that all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. The servant was aware. The, the women in the city were aware. Saul appears to be oblivious, even though he encounters him exactly where the women said he would be found. Now, God undoubtedly uses Saul to bless his people. They wanted relief from their enemies. Verse 16, we're told that he would do that for them. He would provide that. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. But ultimately, he's not going to prove to be the right man for the job. He has the right resume, comes from a wealthy family. Uh, he looks the part, but he doesn't have the right heart. And that's what God's after. Samuel's going to learn that when he anoints the next king, when God tells him, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I've rejected him. That's what he says about Saul. The Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So this means that the people that God employs aren't the ones we expect. We see that with the servant, we see that with the women. We think, oh, Saul, no, we do expect him. And God says, yeah, and I'm not using him. See, you've got to keep up. This is a fundamental lesson in Christianity. That the people that God uses are not the ones we expect. It's a fundamental lesson in Christianity, so fundamental that if you don't get it, you can't be saved. Why do I say that? Because Jesus Christ himself, the one who stands at the center of our faith, the one apart from whom we could never be called Christians, our Savior is somebody that we did not expect. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not, yet he was pierced for our transgressions. If you're looking for someone who fits the bill, you're going to look right past Jesus. You're going to look right past your salvation. God uses people that we don't expect. And that transitions us well to our final consideration, that these unexpected providences of God, these unexpected methods of God, the circumstances he uses, the people he employs, are all in service of the mercy that he shows, the mercy that he shows. Through a herd of lost donkeys, through the instructions of an unnamed servant and some women at a well, God's actually showing mercy to his people, and we see that in verse 16. Look, what there, look there with me here as we uh, conclude. We learn of God's motivation in sending Saul to Samuel. Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. Listen to this. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Now look at this again. Three times in that verse, God refers to Israel. And what does he call them? Three times. My people. My people. My people. He's talking about the nation that just in the previous chapter had rejected him as king. We don't, we don't like the way God's running things here. We want someone different. They just disowned him, and he still owns them. 
They say, he's not our God. We don't really, we don't really care for the way he's doing things. He says, you're still my people, though. He doesn't give them up. It's mercy. He still associates himself with them. If, if God has covenanted to be yours in Christ Jesus, then nothing changes that. Even your sin, even your rebellion, he'll, stay, he'll still say, you're mine. You're mine. And since you are always God, since he never rejects his children, you can be assured that he's always watching over you. Isn't that what he says here? He hasn't turned his back on Israel. Rather, their cry has come to me, he says. It's reached my ears. It's really fascinating because this is the exact same language that's used at the beginning of Exodus uh, to describe how God hears the plight of his people who are enslaved by the Egyptians. Their cry came up to him. And we get that, I think. That makes more sense to us, right? Because here they are, they're oppressed, they're mistreated, they're abused, and, and God has pity on them. He's, he's moved to, to spare them and to rescue them. They need help. But here, they're not oppressed, they're not abused, they're not being mistreated. Before, God was having pity on a people who were abused. Now he's having pity on a people who are abusing him, mistreating him. His mercy is just as unexpected as his providence. Who would have thought that would have been God's response? Would you have expected, I wonder, to hear Jesus say at the moment of his deepest pain and agony, Father, forgive them? Why is it that God hears a cry and comes to help his people when even uh, the people are the problem? Why is it that God hears our cry even when we are the ones who are rebelling and rejecting him? We're learning something about the heart of God, aren't we? About his love for sinners. We're learning that it's not only our suffering that moves God to pity us, like in Exodus, but it's also our stubbornness that moves him to pity, like in 1 Samuel. It's our own foolishness. It's our own sin that causes God to show mercy. Here's a verse for your week, Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Thomas Goodwin once wrote that our very sins, our very sins move him to pity more than to anger. Our sins move him to pity more than to anger. And then he concludes, so what can't go well for us when our sins that are both against Christ and us are even turned as motivations for him to pity us all the more? The unexpected ways of God are at times maddening. Like when you can't find your keys or your donkeys three times in a, a, a row. The unexpected ways of God are mysterious, like when he uses people that we don't expect, uh, like servants or uh, unnamed uh, women at the well. But the unexpected ways of God are, above all else, always, always marvelous. They're marvelous, because who would expect that our own sin and rebellion would cause Christ to come down from heaven and save us? That's not how I would have written the story. That's not how I would have guessed it would end. But praise God that he does not work according to our expectations. Praise God that he does more 
than all we could ever ask or imagine. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take your word and the truths that we find there today and write them on our hearts, that the Holy Spirit would come and would be the after-preacher, that we would go from this place and would not forget what we've heard from you today, that we would be comforted, challenged where necessary, that we would be encouraged in the faith, that we would be encouraged in the way that you work. Indeed, you work all things for our good, and for that we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.